Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Well, it is good to be back with you. I think that's only the second time in my ministry that I've been away two Sundays in a row, but we did a week's vacation and then, of course, attended the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, we're glad to be back home, but my sermon this morning is going to be a bit different than normal, which some of you are thinking, well, good, maybe I'll finally like one for a change. I had intended to start the Old Testament book of Ruth today, but for several reasons, I'm going to put that off until next week. And so I readily acknowledge that this sermon will not be the traditional expository sermon that I strive to do week after week, and that is to take a passage of Scripture and to read it and to uh, study it, to expound upon it so that we understand what it means while also trying to apply it to our lives. I do not like to deviate from that norm, but I'm going to today. And I'm doing so for several reasons. One, it is Father's Day. And so I did not think it was a good time to start a book of the Bible that centers on two women. Secondly, I have just returned, as I said, from the Southern Baptist Convention, and you have no doubt heard and read some of the things that went on there. We've already gotten a few questions about that, and no doubt there are other questions that you may be thinking but have not asked, and so I felt the necessity to give a little bit of background as to what is going on, especially given the fact that uh, all that our denomination is going through and the misunderstandings that many people have on how our denomination works and the twisting of information that the media tends to do. And thirdly, I wanted to try to put all of this together in a way to introduce the book of Ruth. So I am attempting to do three things this morning, which means I will likely not do any of them well. I want to address what is going on in our denomination. I want to acknowledge that it is Father's Day and speak to that briefly. And I want to set the stage for our study of the book of Ruth that will begin next Sunday. Now, in a sermon, you are really supposed to have one main idea. And that main idea should be captured in whatever you choose to title the sermon. That becomes difficult when I'm trying to do three different things in one sermon, but I think I have hit upon a common theme, one that will serve us for all three points. And more importantly, a theme that we find in the scripture that I'm going to read, in the scripture I'm going to refer to, and of course in the book of Ruth that we will begin next week. And that theme is love. And so we are going to do a tour of love this morning. Now, if you happen to follow my wife's social media, you know that we went to several different cities, not just attending the Southern Baptist Convention, but visited several other cities along the way. And each time we were in a different city, we had to remind ourselves that we couldn't do everything that was in that city. We couldn't see everything in the few days that we were there. And so I say that to say to us, our tour of love is certainly not going to be exhaustive of everything there is to know about love. There's certainly too much in the Bible about that, and that is too broad of a theme for one sermon. 
Now, when I go to the Olive Garden, I like to order the tour of Italy. It has three things, right? Have you ever ordered that? It has lasagna, chicken parm, and fettuccine alfredo. So we get a little variety. So this morning in our tour of love, we are going to get a little variety. And we're going to begin in Psalm 33, verses 1 through 5. That's going to be our main text, and later we're going to go elsewhere. Psalm 33, verses 1 through 5. The psalmist says, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. I chose this for that verse the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Now, I want to begin by talking about the Southern Baptist Convention and specifically one aspect of it. Under the first point, under the first heading, love for victims. The text I've just read, you notice that God loves righteousness and justice, meaning that God is a God who looks out for those who need help. And then in verse 5, I referenced it, he talks about his steadfast love filling the earth. And steadfast love, that's one word in the original, steadfast love is going to be the word that pulls all of this together this morning. Now, we hear a lot these days about justice, or more specifically, social justice, and how much the church should or should not be involved in it. Regardless of your conclusion on that matter, there is no mistaking the fact that God is a God of justice. He does notice and see the oppressed. He does recognize those who are downcast and therefore expects us to do likewise. I mean, one of the most famous parables told by Jesus teaches this point, the parable of the Good Samaritan. That is, this man went out of his way to help someone who was downcast, who was oppressed, and who needed help. And in fact, we still have laws on our books today that make it a crime when we see someone who needs help, and we are able to offer that help, and if we do not do it, it is a crime. And in fact, those crimes are still called Good Samaritan laws after the parable that Jesus told. My point is simply that God sees those who are victimized by those in power or positions to do so, and he loves them. And as his followers, we are to love what God loves. And God loves those who are victimized, and therefore we ought to love them as well. The biggest issue in the SBC this year was the result of a decision we made last year in Nashville. At the meeting in Nashville last year, we established a sexual abuse task force, and we commissioned a third-party company to investigate the dealings of the executive committee with regard to this issue. Now, I want you to understand that there were not accusations that members of the executive committee were guilty of abuse. That was not the point. The point was that there was some concern that members of the executive committee 
had not acted upon abuse that they had been made aware of. The executive committee is the group that acts on behalf of the convention when we are not in session, which means they act every day of the year except for two because the convention only exists two days a year. And therefore, the executive committee is the one that carries out the actions of the convention on a daily basis. It is made up of 86 representatives from across the United States. And those 86 representatives, some of them are ministers, some of them are lay people. Those 86 ministers, uh, those 86 members then employ some 26 employees to actually do the work of the convention the rest of the year. The current president of the executive committee is from here in Tennessee. His name is Willie McLaren, and he used to be on staff with the Tennessee Baptist Convention before he took a position with the executive committee. Now, that's different from the president of the convention. This is the president of the executive committee. We Baptists love to do things in complexity. We don't like simplicity. We like to make things complex. So I know that can be confusing. So we commissioned this independent report, and that report came out just a couple of weeks before the convention, or just a few weeks ago, something I wrote about in our June newsletter. You can read it for yourself. I'm telling you it's long, it's 288 pages, and that does not include the footnotes, so it is very lengthy, and you are welcome to read it. If you do not know where to find it, email me, and I will give you the link to that website. Now, the truth of the matter is, much of what was in the report was already public knowledge if you knew where to look for it. But putting it all together in one report certainly was disturbing, to say the least. Now, I also want you to understand that the majority of the executive committee members, those 86 individuals that I mentioned, the majority of them had no idea that all of this was going on. It was really confined to just a few leaders among that executive committee. So out of that report came a few initial recommendations that we approved this past week in Anaheim. The first recommendation was the formation of another task force, the Abuse Reform Implementation Task Force. Yes, again, we Baptists love task force. We love committees. That's how we solve things. We get a group of people together to do the work on our behalf. So this task force was charged with further studying the Guidepost report. Now, Guidepost is not the magazine. I know that's confusing. Guidepost is an independent, secular, third-party organization that deals with these kinds of things. So this task force is charged with educating not only the churches, but also the state conventions and the other entities of our convention as to what is going on and how to solve it. They will also establish a victim hotline so that you or anybody else in the Southern Baptist Convention can call this hotline and report sexual abuse to this third party. This work will uh, be funded by $4 million, not cooperative program money, but $4 million that send relief. That is a joint effort between the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. They've pledged $4 million for this effort. That is an educational effort along with providing counseling for those who have been victimized. So the task force will operate for one year and it can be renewed again each year at the convention. So recommendation number one that we approved was the implementation of this task force. The second recommendation was the creation of a ministry check website, which will be a database of pastors, 
church employees, volunteers who have been credibly accused of abuse. Frankly, this should have been done years ago. It was brought up years ago. Over a decade ago, this was brought up at a Southern Baptist Convention, and I was for it then. But we have finally agreed to do this because the problem has been often in Southern Baptist life that if we have an abuse situation in a church, we're just happy to get rid of it. And so we send the guy down the road. He goes into another church where there's an 80% chance that he's going to do the same thing again. And so this ministry database is going to help stop that so that somebody can't go from one church to another and continue to abuse other people. So this will be a database that churches can access before they hire someone or before they put someone in a place of service so they can know whether or not this individual has a history of abusing victims. Now, I also want you to be aware that we have had policies at this church long before any of this came out. We've always stuck to the idea that we ought to have two adults in every classroom that contains children and youth. That's nothing new for us. We always have two adults in each classroom so that there is supervision. We've done background checks for ministers and volunteers for children and youth for years. And when we've been made aware of abuse, we've dealt with it to the best of our knowledge, including calling the law or DCS as the case might be. I want you to know we have not, nor will we, sweep this under the proverbial rug, but we will always deal with this to the best of our ability. In my first church, just two or three years out of seminary, I had a young man in our church. He was 18 years old at the time. He came faithfully to our church, though his family did not. And he came to me one time accusing one of our deacons of doing something with him. I didn't know how to deal with that. Again, I was just a few years out of seminary, and they didn't teach us that kind of stuff in seminary. But I, I, I got some advice from people who did. I called that Presbyterian pastor I told you about a few weeks ago. And I asked him for advice. I called the local sheriff whose family happened to attend our church, and so I knew him. I called him and asked for advice. I called the Southern Baptist Convention, and they put me in touch with an attorney who freely gave me advice on how to move forward. Now, the outcome of that case is not the point. The point is we've always sought to do things the right way with these type of accusations, and we will continue to do so. We've done similar things here at this church where we've had accusations. We've called the law, we've called DCS, and we will continue to do so. Ministers are mandatory reporters, just like teachers. If we hear of something, we have to report it to the law. So if you are a victim, I want you to know that we are here to listen to you. You do have a, an arena to report that. We do want to help you. We do want to help you find healing. Now, I don't believe that calling the Southern Baptist Convention hotline ought to be your first step. I think you ought to report your abuse to a teacher, uh, to one of us as on staff, or to the police. Someone locally ought to be your first step. While the SBC is going to help, I really think your first call ought to be to someone locally. And if you don't find help there, then we have a local association of Southern Baptists, the Knox County Association of Baptists. They're going to be equipped to help you. We have a state convention, the Tennessee Baptist Convention or the Tennessee Baptist Mission Board. They are going to be equipped to help you. So let me conclude the first stop on our tour of love by saying simply, God loves you. 
The earth is full of his steadfast love. And that certainly includes the victims of any kind of abuse. But that also means that we love you too. As followers of Christ, we love like he does, and we love because he loves. And so we want to be a place, and we want to be a partner that can help you in your healing, expressing our love tangibly by supporting and encouraging you in your struggles. Again, I don't like to do this on Sunday mornings. I don't like to deviate from expository preaching, but this subject is so prevalent the wounds are so grievous and the misconceptions as far as our denomination is, is, are so faulty that I felt like I had to take the time this morning to address it. Much more has gone on in our convention and will continue. And if you have questions, certainly you are welcome to reach out to me and ask me those questions. Aaron and Scott also attended the convention this week and they too will be happy to answer your questions. So feel free to reach out to any of the three of us and we will address whatever questions you have about our denomination. Now let's talk secondly, not only about God's love and our love for victims, but secondly, we want to notice our love for children, since this is Father's Day. The charge here is rather simple and straightforward. Fathers are to love their children. In fact, I heard several times this week how these two are interrelated. That is, someone would ask somebody how they were going to deal with abuse, and invariably the individual would say, you know what, I'm a father, and I have two children, I have two daughters, and I'm gonna deal with abuse just like I would if it happened to my own children. And so there is that connection between a father's love for his children and our love for victims. Meaning that we are going to take action and we are gonna do all that we can. Our love for our children as fathers or mothers is certainly instinctive. Generally speaking, it is part of our nature. It is something that just arrives the first time you hold that child in your hand. There is just that love. You might have questioned whether or not you're going to be a good father or a good mother, but when you first hold that child in your hand, that love is instinctive. Now, fathers might need to be instructed on how to show love, and sometimes this changes from one generation to the next. Fathers might need to be encouraged to verbalize their love, especially depending on the love language of the child. But we usually don't have to be reminded that we are to love because that is just part of what it means to be a father or a mother. Now, we are going to go to a different psalm at this point, a psalm that talks not about our love as earthly fathers, but a psalm that talks about God's love for his children. After all, his love for us is the model that we are to follow in loving our children. And this, this psalm is not going to be on your screen, and so you're going to have to use the old-fashioned method. You're going to have to open your hard copy of the, of the Bible, or you're going to have to use your digital copy. But before I reveal what psalm this is, I want to say that I'm not a big fan of repetition. It's why I use notes for my sermon, because I don't want to just repeat myself. I don't want to get lost in what I'm doing and just be repetitive because I know you don't want to hear that. And I don't like repetition in songs. It's why I criticize some worship songs just like some of you do. In fact, we were in one of the sessions this week and the, the group that was on stage was leading a song and I finally turned to Tracy as the song was over and I said, that was the most repetitive song I've ever heard in my life. 
I don't even remember the name of it, but it was just the same thing over and over again. We repeat things for emphasis, which is why advertisers run commercials over and over again because they want to get their slogan or their jingle stuck in your head. Again, at the convention this past week, we were at a luncheon. North American Mission Board was putting it on and there was a comedian, a Christian comedian that was leading the, uh, the luncheon. And uh, as a way of, of showing how ingrained we are in these things, he, he, he gave us several jingles and asked us to finish them as an audience. And the vast majority of the audience knew every single jingle that he did because we've heard it so many times. Having said all of that, what if God repeats himself? What if God says something 26 times in one psalm? It's found in Psalm 136. And there are 26 verses in this psalm. And the second stanza of each verse is the exact same phrase. So while we might criticize repetition in worship songs, we dare not criticize when God repeats himself. Now, I'm not going to read this psalm, but I am going to go over it briefly with you. Now, you notice that the phrase that I'm referring to is the second line of each verse. For his steadfast love endures forever. That's the same word we saw in Psalm 33. Now, likely, originally, this would have been sort of like our responsive readings. That is, the priest would have read the first line, and the congregation would have read the repeated line. That is, the priest would have said, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. And then the congregation would have said, for his steadfast love endures forever. So here's a quick outline of this psalm. The first three verses, we are told to give thanks. We're giving thanks because God's steadfast love endures forever. In verses 4 through 9, he speaks about creation. And again, we're reminded that God is a good God who has created all things because of his steadfast love. In verses 10 through 16, there, there is the defining moment of deliverance and bondage in Egypt. That is the defining moment for Israel when God delivered them from this bondage. And why did he do it? Because his steadfast love endures forever. In verses 17 through 22, it speaks of God as a warrior fighting on behalf of Israel, that is conquering their enemies and protecting them. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. And then the last section of this psalm deals with the provisions of God for his children, provisions against their enemies and also provisions of food. And then the psalm ends where it began. Give thanks to the God of heaven. Why? Because his steadfast love endures forever. Now, not only do we struggle to demonstrate love, but sometimes we really do have a hard time understanding what true love is, especially biblically. We realize that our own love is fickle. That is, we profess great love one day, and a few days later, we wonder where it went. And since our love for one another is the only visible model that we have on a regular basis, we sometimes wonder if God's love operates in a similar way, rising to new levels when we've been good but disappearing altogether when we've sinned or ignored him. But as fathers and mothers, we know that that's not the way love works. The love of a father or a mother for his or her children does not disappear. 
it remains. Now that child might be disobedient. That child might, dis dis uh, that child might disappoint us. He or she may disapprove. They may rebel against us. They may shut us out. But our love remains. The word that is translated steadfast love is a difficult word to translate from the Hebrew. It's the word has said. And it's difficult, not because it's a hard word, but it's difficult because it, it is so in depth in its meaning that no English word adequately contains everything contained therein. Obviously, in my ESV version that I'm reading from, it's translated in both of these Psalms as steadfast love. Other places, it's translated kindness, loving kindness, goodness, or even mercy. It's sometimes referred to as covenantal love to emphasize the ongoing and unbreakable bond it represents. It is not just a verbal expression, but it is always expressed through actions, genuine concern for others, which is why we see in this psalm that God has expressed his love for us through creation, through deliverance, through protecting us, and through providing for us. This is the kind of love that demonstrates strong devotion and therefore never wavers. A definition I came across this week as I was reading uh, in preparation for our study in the book of Ruth said this, acts of said are generous, often going beyond obligation or what is strictly required for the benefit of someone who is not able to help him or herself. And that ties back into our first point, doesn't it? We are to love those who need our help, whether that's a victim of some type of abuse or those who are struggling through countless other difficulties. This is the way God the Father loves us, his children. It is the way earthly fathers are to love their children. And it is the way believers are to love one another. And this is becoming increasingly difficult in our divisive age where we label and libel other people rather than love them. But Jesus' statement still stands. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one toward another. And then, of course, the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Now, that leads to my final point in this tour of love, and I'm calling it love for widows. And I'm calling it that as a way to introduce the book of Ruth. Remember, that was my third stated objective this morning. I wanted to talk about what was going on in our convention, and we did that with love for victims. I wanted to talk about Father's Day, and we did that through our love for children. And then thirdly, we want to talk about the book of Ruth, introducing that, and we're doing that through our love for widows. Ruth, of course, is a widow, as was her mother-in-law, Naomi. Furthermore, the Bible makes clear that genuine religion manifests itself in love for widows. Viewed in that day, in the biblical day, they were one of the most vulnerable people in society along with orphans. And while current day widows often have other means of support, the principle still stands. We've already seen that God made this statement 26 times. His steadfast love endures forever. And we certainly like to hear someone say, I love you. But we also want to see that love in action. In fact, we even said that said is a type of love that always demonstrates itself in action. 
So in the two Psalms we've looked at, the principle of God's love was there. Repeatedly, God says, I love you, and my love for you remains forever. But now in the book of Ruth, we're going to see that same thing in action, in a story format. Ruth is a love story, a picture or a drama played out in real life demonstrating God's love and care for his people. We sometimes want a proof of love. Show me that you love me. Well, that's what God is doing in the book of Ruth. He is showing us how much he loves us, and of course, he did the same on Calvary. The book of Ruth is beloved by many because it has all the good elements of a story. It has compelling drama, meaning there are dilemmas that are faced by the characters in the story that they have to tackle and ultimately overcome. In the book of Ruth, it begins with a famine, and that famine forces a family to leave their home and go to a foreign land, and eventually they're going to come back. But when they come back, it's just the women who come back because the, the, the men in the family have all passed away in the decade or so that they've been gone. And so when they come back, they're not only widows, but they are destitute. They don't have any way of supporting themselves. And the most important dilemma in the book of Ruth is the family name. How is this family name going to be carried forward? I know that's probably not a huge issue in our day, but in that culture, it certainly was. So in the book of Ruth, we see Ruth showing steadfast love. We see Ruth demonstrating said to Naomi, her mother-in-law, because she goes above and beyond what is required of her and stays by the side of someone who is not a blood relative of hers. And then, of course, the main character, uh, characters in the story are Boaz and Ruth. And Boaz goes above and beyond, demonstrating his said for this widow named Ruth. And again, it's not, all, it's not his responsibility. He is a kinsman redeemer, but not the nearest. And that's another important word we're going to look at in the book of Ruth. We're going to see a picture of his said, and we're going to talk about a kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a key concept of this little book that we're going to begin exploring. And it is the idea that someone comes along and provides for someone else. Now, when we think about a tour of love, we certainly must also think about the Trinity, right? God the Father has loved us with an everlasting love. We've seen that. His steadfast love endures forever. That steadfast love sent the Son, willingly, I might add, to die on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, purchasing our freedom so that we might be forgiven. And the Spirit of God who drew us to salvation continues to draw us closer and closer to God. Now, you may not be a victim. You may not be a widow. But spiritually, we were all in a vulnerable and weak position one in which we could not deliver ourselves. But God, in his said, his steadfast love became your kinsman redeemer, buying you back, which is basically what the word redeemer means, so that you could not only be forgiven, but enjoy an intimate relationship with him. That is, if you by faith put your trust in the finished work of Christ on Calvary. If you haven't done that previously, you can certainly do it now. There is always time while we have breath to turn and trust. And if you have, 
then I want you to go back to Psalm 33 where we began and see plenty of reasons to give thanks to God. Or Psalm 133 or 36, his steadfast love endures forever, as will you. You too will endure forever. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, you will live with him for all eternity. Let me pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word, and most importantly today, for your steadfast love. Your love that never wavers. Your love that never changes. Even when we sin and disappoint you, even when we stray and ignore you, your love remains. God, thank you for loving us. May we in turn then not only love you, but love those who are victims and weak. Love those who are our children in uh, physical being and in the faith. And love those who are needing, uh, needful in our society, whether that be widows and orphans or, or any who need our help. May we love because you love us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing and you respond.